next week we will finish uh, having preached through the entire gospel of Luke. Um, You may have heard it said before that as Christians we are to be people of the book, meaning we are to be people of the, uh, of the Bible, of the 66 books, the inspired Word of God. Um, it was said of the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon that if you were to prick him, the blood that would come out from his veins would be of the Bible, meaning that he just loved the Word of God and everything that came forth from him was from the Word. And that is to be a truth, that's to be true of every single one of us. The primary means which God has chosen to reveal himself to this world is through his word and that's what we're going to see today is that the bible reveals the glory of god in such a way that it sets our hearts on fire it authenticates uh the cross and the crucifixion which we'll see today it sets our hearts on fire that as christians we would love god grow in his word and desire to share the gospel with others as unbelievers it sets their hearts on fire that they would come to faith that they would believe in God, that they would live as God has called them to, and also spread the gospel for the glory of God. And so what we're going to look today is how the Bible sufficiently reveals the need for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and encourage you to stand. We're in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 13 to 35. We stand here when we read the Bible uh, because we believe the Bible comes with the full authority of God. It's been inspired by His Spirit. And so we do so as a means of honoring our God and our King. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight." They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Our Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your holy, inspired word. We thank you for an account such as this that you have given to us that that goes back and tells us about the details of the resurrection and about what was happening and what was happening in the minds of the disciples. Lord, we thank you for how you reveal your glory to us in this passage, that you reveal to us your power and your might. And that you reveal to us the necessity 
of your son Jesus dying on the cross and rising again three days later. Lord, I pray that as we come to this passage today, that our hearts would be set on fire. I pray that just as the early disciples, their hearts were set on fire so that they went and told others the good news, so that would be true of us today. God, may your spirit work and illuminate today the truth of this passage. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, So chapter 24 has three stories. We looked at the first story last week. Um, We'll look at the next story next week. So this is the one in the middle. And then next week as we come together, we'll put them all three together and kind of show what the meaning is there. Uh, But they all follow the same pattern. And the pattern is is there's uh, perplexion, there's a rebuke, there's instruction, and there's a witness. And so that's the pattern. We followed that last week. We'll follow that, we'll follow that this week. We'll follow that next week because that's the pattern that we're given in Scripture. So let's look. We have, um, we begin with perplexed. We have two disciples, Sunday afternoon, walking to Emmaus, seven-mile journey uh, from Jerusalem. And they're wrestling with the events that have just happened. So this is the Sunday after Friday of the crucifixion. And they don't know what to think. We're told that they're sad. In fact, when Jesus comes, they stop and they're sad. They're they're wrestling with this. Jesus, the one that they've heard preach with great authority, the one who has healed the sick, made the lame to walk, rose the dead, he's dead. This man is dead, the one that they have followed, the one that they had all their hopes in, and he has now been killed, and not just any death, but death by crucifixion. Their hopes have been crushed, and what we're going to see is that the reason that their hopes are crushed is because they had wrong expectations, and the same thing will be for us today. When we have wrong expectations, and when those come to fruition, our hopes will also be crushed. And so in verse 16, Jesus is going to join them, but they don't recognize him. Why? Does he look strange? Does he look weird? Why don't they recognize him? Well, Scripture says because they're kept from recognizing him. So it's not that Jesus looks different, but there's some some divine sovereignty working here that he actually keeps them from recognizing. And there's probably at at least three reasons why, probably more. Number one, I think we're given a picture of salvation we have that their eyes are blind, but at the end of the passage, their eyes are open. They can see, and, and it's through the opening of scriptures that their eyes are open. So I think that's a picture of salvation. Secondly, uh, we get to see exactly what they think at this moment. Imagine, Jesus shows up. He reveals to them, look, I'm here. And they go, oh, great, we knew you were going to raise from the dead. Because Jesus is always the Sunday school answer. You know, so it's like, oh, great, yeah, we had confidence. They didn't have confidence. Um, but so here we, we get to hear their feelings in the raw. So I think that that's really helpful because it helps us understand what were they thinking? What were those who were following Jesus? What was on their mind? And third, we get to see how Jesus reveals himself. And we're going to see that's through the word. Verse 17, Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? Verse 18, the two people, they're so sad that they stop. And you just got to imagine, they're turning with this weak, hopeless voice. And so you don't read this, or are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that you haven't heard this? Like, you can't read it like that. It's kind of like the Psalms. You have to read it with the emotion that's there. And so you got to figure there, are you the only visitor? Like, they don't understand. How do you not know what has happened in Jerusalem. So a couple things to think about there. Number one, the crucifixion was not a small event. Like Cleopas here, he is he's dumbfounded. How do you not know? So this goes back. What Luke is giving us here is a historical event. This is not fiction. This is not some made-up thing. Luke is saying, look, I have given you a detailed account. I give you actually names and places, and you can go back and you can check all my details. And so Luke even here is he's just emphasizing the historicity of the crucifixion, saying, you don't know? Like, all of Jerusalem knows. This was not a, a small town event. You go talk to anyone, and they've heard that a man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified this weekend. Secondly, 
We've mentioned this several times now in the, in, the, in the weeks leading up. You see the irony? There's irony. Luke gives irony. Okay, they turn to Jesus. Jesus, do you not know what happened? Do you see it? Yes, he does. They don't know what happened. They think Jesus is dead. They think Satan is one. They think the uh, Romans, as they crucified him, have actually killed Jesus to the point that he's not coming back. But the truth is, Jesus is the only one who actually knows what happened there. And so the question is full of irony. Verse 19 to 21, we're going to see why the disciples are perplexed. First, verse 19, we see who the disciples actually thought Jesus was. They say, well, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now, that's good, right? Jesus was a prophet, right? It's not a trick question. Jesus was a prophet, right? Yes. Deuteronomy, I think it's 18. Moses looks, 18, 28. Somewhere in Deuteronomy, Moses looks forward to a much greater prophet who will come who is Jesus Christ. All the prophets in the Old Testament lead to the fulfillment of the one great prophet who would come and teach the word of God. But it doesn't seem that they truly understood who Jesus was because then we come to their expectation. In verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And what are they getting at there? They're, they're communicating the first century thought of a Messiah. They wanted, that the idea is that they need a Messiah who will come liberate Israel from the, Ro- for the, Ro- uh, from the rule of Rome. That was their goal. That was their biggest need is liberation from Roman oppression. That's what they wanted. They can't wait for the great King David to return, the one just like David who will come, the Messiah figure, the Son of Man, the one we've been reading about throughout the Scriptures, and he will return Israel to the mighty, powerful nation that it was, who will then lead them into the rule of Solomon where there is peace and prosperity all over. That is the hope because their biggest need is liberation from Roman oppression. They had no category for a crucified, crucified Messiah. When they read the Old Testament, they see passages like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, and they go, we can't wait for that guy to come and rule. They see, okay, there's going to be a son coming from David, the greater David who will come. We can't wait for that guy. But then there's this picture in Isaiah 53 called the suffering servant. We don't know what that is, so we just set that puzzle piece aside, and we'll look at these ones over here, because this is what we need. But it wasn't until the cross of Jesus Christ that then we see that the Son of Man, the greater David, the greater prophet, the greater priest, the suffering servant, all come together as one man in Jesus Christ. And they didn't see that. And so because they did not see that, because they did not understand that a Messiah was, co- was to come, who was to die for their sins, that they could be forgiven, when the cross comes, they're devastated. They had no category for a crucified Messiah. They felt lost. They felt hopeless. They felt devastated. I mean, what have we been doing all this time? We've been following this guy, putting all of our hopes in him, and he's dead. What do we do? Go back to fishing, go back to the old jobs. Have you ever felt this way? I mean, just kind of think like where the disciples are right now. Have you ever felt you knew what was going to happen? You had a pretty good idea. This is the future. And then that didn't happen. Something happened that you were not expecting, and you felt like someone just hits you in the stomach and you're trying to gasp for air but yet there's no air to be brought in, so you're just reeling there going, I don't know what happened. You can't breathe. That's the state of the disciples. Maybe, maybe that's, you've experienced some form of that. Maybe you went to college, you got a degree, you knew what you wanted to do, and now you have a job that you didn't want, you don't like, and you're going like, how did this work out? Maybe you're a mom and you're wondering, does my life really revolve around sports, school, and taking my kids every other place that they need to go? 
And just like, you know, earlier in life, it was not really what you were thinking was your future. Maybe you look at politics and you're left perplexed and you're going, how did we get here? I've no, is there hope? Like, can we actually be saved from this type of situation? Maybe you look at the world and you don't know how to make sense of random shootings, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, dictators that threaten nuclear war. And you're going, How? Can there be a hope in this? Maybe you've experienced the pain of bearing a child, a loved one, and you wonder, this wasn't supposed to be like this. Did I just get a bad roll of the dice? I met a guy a couple weeks ago and briefly, very briefly, talked to him just about the gospel, just kind of mentioned it to him, and he said, look, my wife has died from cancer. I don't believe in God. So he clearly communicates that I don't know how my wife, who is a good person, can die of cancer and there be a God who's good. That doesn't fit. I don't have that category. Doesn't know how to understand that. So what do you do when you're in this situation? Are there answers? Is there direction? What we see in our scripture is that God is going to reveal the truth of the resurrection by giving them the word of God. And it's by understanding the word that they will understand the events of the crucifixion. And I will argue that it is only through the word we will understand anything in this world. It's as we come to the Bible that we are given minds that are continually transformed that we would see things the way God sees them. Now this doesn't mean when we come to the Bible it's like Siri. You, know, you push the button. Or open the book, and all of a sudden it says, what can I do for you? You give your question, and then it just gives you back the answer. That usually works good for me. It works terrible for my wife. Like, Siri, like, they're not friends. Are you friends with Siri? Like, Siri loves me. Like, I, I don't even have to pronounce the right word, and Siri knows what I'm thinking. Um, but rather, the Bible, the way it informs us and directs us, now sometimes it just kind of gives us the answer right away. But oftentimes it's kind of like, if you're a parent, do you ever get to see that you keep buying clothes for your kids, bigger sizes, but you never see your kids grow? You ever, like, wonder, like, how are you bigger? You haven't grown. Why don't these things fit anymore? I bought them two weeks ago. And, and when you look at your kid, they look the same, right? But if you look at a picture from three months ago, six months ago, or a year ago, you're going, well, they've changed. But you don't see that immediate change. That's really what happens when we come to the Word. So like right now, we're at the end of 2017. There should be a difference when we look at our lives over the last 360 plus days from the beginning of this year. And we should say, I've grown in my walk with God. I can see that. Now if I look every single day, I might not know how I really grow. But as I look back, I can see the trajectory of growth that God has been working in me. And what I will say is that it's through the word of God we grow. And it's through the word of God, God reveals his glory. God reveals understanding to us that we would know the cross and that we would understand really all things that happen. And so now we're going to move into the rebuke. Verse 25, Jesus rebukes these two people. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Why are they slow to heart? Why are they foolish? Is it because they didn't believe what the women said earlier? Remember, last week, the women, they go to the tomb. Jesus is risen. They see the angels. The angels are like, why are you here? Didn't you know from Scripture, from what Jesus said that he was going to raise from the dead? They run back. They tell the disciples. Obviously, these two people have heard about that. But does Jesus say, you're slow of heart. You're not too quick because you didn't believe the women. That's not what he says, is it? He gives us a reason, and the reason is all the prophets have spoken, meaning the Old Testament. This is shorthand, the scriptures of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, which was what they would have at that moment. And so now Jesus is going to correct them. And what I love about this, like, imagine, you want to you're the Messiah, you want to prove that you've risen. What do you do at this moment? You open their eyes, right? Look at me! What were you thinking? But what does Jesus do? Takes them to the Bible. Because through the Bible, 
they will see Jesus. And so that's where he takes them. That's where we need to go if we're going to understand Jesus. We go to the Bible. We don't need self-help books. We don't need the Christian bookstore that gives us six steps to better this, better that. We come to God's Word. Now, there are good books out there. We have a, we have a, a bookstore back there that gives some suggestions of good books. But primarily, we come to the Word of God. Your unbelieving friends, you know what they need? They need the Bible because it's the Bible that reveals the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So when you give your testimony, you want to lead them to God's word, that you would open it before them and show them the need of a crucified Messiah who rose three days later. Because this is Jesus' tactic. Because he takes us to the word because the word reveals himself. So it's not going to be your persuasiveness. In fact, it might be your persuasiveness that keeps people from Jesus. But bring the Bible to them and that's what will bring them to Jesus. So, So hear this. This is God's means of us understanding his glory, of us seeing Jesus. This isn't you need techniques. This isn't we need better tactics. This isn't, you know, put your hand on them, bow your head, start praying, and hopefully they start praying too. That used to be a very popular technique. This is take them to the word. Share the word with them, and their eyes will be opened by the word, by the power of God. And so notice what he does. Verse 26, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? Like, this isn't like, was it not necessary? Like, there's, was it not necessary? Like, how did you not see this? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So basically said, Jesus says, don't you know that it was necessary for the Messiah to enter into glory through suffering? Didn't you see that? Like, that's what the scriptures are. And he says, I'm going to prove it to you. So let's go look at Moses, which that's the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, shorthand for the rest of the Bible. And so he says, now I'm going to prove it to you. So our question before us is, why is it necessary that Christ should suffer before entering glory? What's the answer? We could answer this in a couple ways, right? Well, one way we could easily say Christ suffered in our place so that by faith in him we could have eternal life. It would be the whole, we need someone to die in our place. We could take them, we could go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, which gives us a whole description of all of the sacrifices that Israel is to make. Because when we read the Bible, what we see, Genesis begins, Adam and Eve. And they're perfect, they're created in the image of God, they're in the presence of God, loving the very rule of God. But then sin comes, right? And what happens? They're removed from the garden, so they're outside the presence of God. They now rebel against the rule of God. And so so we need someone to bring us back into the presence. And the only way we can come into the presence of God, the only way we can come to worship God, the only way we can obtain forgiveness is through the blood sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament, we see these sacrifices, this cost for sin. The means to come to God is through blood. But when we go through the Old Testament, we see goat after goat, bull after bull, sheep after sheep, and they keep being sacrificed. I mean, the Old Testament is bloody Because we keep having to make these sacrifices because they're not actually good enough. Because can the blood of a goat or a bull take away a human sacrifice? Well, no, it's not a proper substitute. That's what the whole book of Hebrews talks about in the New Testament. How Jesus is the greater priest and he's the greater sacrifice. And so we need someone to be able to die for us. And we can't do it because we we cannot satisfy God's wrath if we suffer for eternity, we still do not satisfy the wrath of God. Do you understand that? Like, that's why hell is pictured as eternal, because our sin is so grievous against God that we cannot satisfy it even after we suffer for eternity. And so we need someone to stand in our place. I can't, I can't stand in my place, and if I can't do my own place, I have no shot in standing in your place, and you would neither for me. So we needed the perfect sacrifice. We needed a son of man to come, a human. But he had to be perfect, so he had to also be the son of God. And that he had to stand in our place so he could fully absorb the wrath of God for us 
on the cross, giving us his righteousness so that now we can live with him. That's one answer, right? That's why it was necessary. We had to have someone die on a cross for us. And that is a very, very good answer. But I don't think that's the one Jesus is making. And I say this specifically because of verse 26. Look at verse 26. Jesus is making a connection between suffering and entering glory. Like he just didn't say, did you not see it was necessary for the Son of Man to die on a cross? He doesn't say that. Do you not see, he says, verse 26, why is it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? So there's a connection. There's suffering that leads to glory. So there's a connection that he's making here. He's like, do you not see that suffering leads to glory? And so our answer, based upon what we see here in the text, is Christ suffered on the cross because that's how he reveals his glory. That's how he is glorified through suffering. God's chosen means of having his son glorified, which glorifies him, is through the suffering that takes place at the cross. So now, if that's the answer, we have to say, does Moses, the prophets, the whole 39 books of the Old Testament... Does it warrant that? Does it teach that? If it doesn't teach it, then that answer isn't good. We know we're off track. But if it teaches it, then it validates the answer. And so what I have is a a series of kind of texts and and biblical stories that we'll just kind of look at. So you can mark them down kind of as we go. Genesis chapter 3.15. This is the very first glimpse of the gospel that we have in the Old Testament. Now, what, if you know the Bible, in Genesis 1, uh, God creates everything, makes man and woman. Uh, Genesis 2, we see specifically he makes Adam and Eve. They live in a garden. Genesis 3 comes, they sin. So not very far into the creation story, we've screwed it all up. We've sinned. Now God enters into the garden, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning the serpent, Satan, and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we know is that Jesus eventually comes as the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. But notice what happens. He's also struck in the heel, right? Now, if you go outside and barefoot and you step on a thorn, it hurts, right? But you fall over and die. Some of you might feel like it. If you have little children, sometimes it feels like they did die, right? But, like, most likely we won't. We pull the thorn out. Ten seconds later, we're mostly good. So the idea here is there's going to be a bruising, a crushing that the seed of the woman will take, but it's not, going to, it's not going to kill him completely. But the bruising that will take place on the serpent will completely crush him. So there's a suffering that's going to lead to glory. We, we see that here in a very shadowy form that only becomes more clear when we come to the New Testament. We'll keep going. Genesis chapter 22. Many of you know this story. Abram has a son named Isaac. He takes Isaac on a walk one day, goes up a mountain. Remember what happens? Isaac says, hey, what's happening? Well, we're going to have a sacrifice. We don't really have wood. We don't have a sacrifice. Abram's like, don't worry. God will provide. Binds his son, puts him on the altar, about to sacrifice him. But then what happens? God provides a goat who will be killed. Slaughtering of the animal leads to the release of Isaac, we have suffering and we have glory there. Many of you know the story at the end of Genesis, which will go from Genesis 37 to chapter 50, the story of Joseph. Joseph has 11 brothers at the time. They don't like him. They reject him. They beat him up, throw him a hole. Eventually, they sell him into slavery, where then he will go off to Egypt, where then he will become a servant. Then he will end up, because of being wrongly accused, he will go into prison. And he will suffer there, but then, by God's providence, God brings him to be second in control of all of Egypt, where he saves not only Egypt and other nations, but also Israel. Do you see that? The suffering led to the very glory of Joseph. If we go to the Exodus, which is the very next book in the Bible from Genesis, we see that Israel's been in Egypt for 400 years. They're suffering as slaves. God hears their cries, he brings Moses, who will perform ten plagues upon Egypt. The last plague is the death of every firstborn son. 
And the only way the Israelites will not suffer the death of their firstborn son is through the blood of a lamb that will be killed, and that blood will be placed on the door. And so we see that through the suffering of Egypt and through the killing of a lamb, God's people are released. Suffering leads to glory. Many of you know the story of Samson. Remember that one? That's a, a terrible story. Samson's a story of a failure, right? You got the guy that all superheroes are based off of, right? Like he's the one that when you're reading and you're like a small kid, you're like, I want to be Samson, the guy with all the strength, picking up the gates, carrying them off, beating up a whole bunch of people with a bone. Like, like that's cool, right? It's okay. I still think it's cool. Like I get excited about it. But Samson, he has all this amazing strength, and he uses it for himself, for his own pleasures, not for the glory of God. So it's wasted. But then at his death, at his death, he uses all of his strength, which will then crush, which will push the pillars aside, which will bring down this entire building, which will kill all the Philistines, which is the enemies of Israel, and himself at that moment. So this death and destruction and suffering will then lead to the very freedom of God's people for the next 20 or so years. Many of you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you go to the story of Daniel, one of the prophets, you'll see that these are three Hebrews that are taken when Babylon comes and destroys Judah. They refuse to bow before a statue. Therefore, remember what happens? They're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They're taken. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And then, all of a sudden, there's a fourth person in there. And it looks like one of the Son of Man. And so, Nebuchadnezzar calls them back out. They don't even smell like smoke. Their clothes aren't singed. And we see that through the suffering comes glory. Nebuchadnezzar says, no one speaks bad about the God of Israel. And then we go on, even in Daniel, we could come to the story of Daniel himself, where he prays to God when there's been a law that says if you pray to anyone other than the king, you'll be thrown into a lion's den. So Daniel's taken, he's thrown into a lion's den, well surely he will die, but God protects him. The next morning, the king rescues him. He's brought out. The enemies are then thrown into the lion's den. So Daniel enters into the suffering. And through that, there is glory where God's might is revealed in the saving of Daniel. We could go to Isaiah 53, which is one of the clearest pictures, where you have Isaiah 53 reveals the suffering servant, that there's going to be this one that will come, and God will place on him the iniquities of his people, the sin of his people. And this, this suffering servant will die for the sake of others that they would have righteousness. Throughout the Bible, we see this suffering leads to glory. So what Jesus is doing here, he's taking the disciples, and they know the Old Testament, but they haven't connected it. They haven't seen how suffering connects to the plan of God, ultimately in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. What we see in Scripture is that God reveals His glory, His might, His power, His strength, and His presence through suffering. That's what God does. Suffering is the peculiar way in which God reveals His glory. The Bible, it's interesting. It doesn't... It doesn't reveal our God uh, as a tyrant yelling from heaven, bow before me. Have you ever noticed that? Like here we have the God of gods sitting on the, the throne of thrones and he doesn't demand in this authoritative, tyrannical voice, bow before me or you will burn. He's not a God demanding us, you hoist me up on your shoulders, carry me around as a burden, showing me, showing everyone that I am your God. That's not how he calls us to act. In fact, Isaiah 46 is a pretty neat, vo neat passage. Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4. So, Bel and Nebo, these are two false gods. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock, meaning they have to be carried around. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, 
all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. False gods display their, go- their glory by making people carry them as burdens. Our God reveals his glory by carrying us. That's the God of the Bible. That's how he reveals his glory. That's how he reveals his love for us. False gods also, if you notice, will surround themselves with powerful figures to reveal their strength and their power. If you know, kings would often have like lions and all these majestic, mighty figures around their throne as a way of showing their might and their power. Listen to what God does at his throne. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What we have, Isaiah says, look, our God is so big and so powerful, he dwells in eternity. Like, can you fathom that? Like, how do you picture that? I dwell in eternity. I always exist. Like, we can't. We actually cannot imagine eternity. We, we don't have that type of category in our minds to, to understand that. Other scriptures will talk about how great God is, that his span of his hand is the span of the cosmos. Other scripture will say that all of the waters in the earth just fits in the palm of his hand. Like all these scriptures are saying, our God is mighty, he is powerful, there is no God that compares, and then yet, who does he dwell with? I dwell with the lowly and the contrite. This is our God. He reveals his glory, his might, his power, his presence, and his strength, not by domination, not by oppression, not by threat, but by service, by love. Remember in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What, what happens at the cross, God reveals his glory in the most humbling way by sending his Son to die on a cross as the ultimate display of his power. That through the condescension of his son, becoming man, coming into humanity, living like us, dying on a cross, that would be the means that he offers salvation. That is the means that he beckons us to come to him as he comes and dies for us. Not from a tyrannical throne saying, bow before me, but from the cross as he dies, calling us to come and believe in him. If you remember Back in chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And what does he do? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. On the cross, we see his heart for the lost. We see the dedication God has to say, I will save all who come to me. Even these people who are putting the nails in my arms and hands. The way God chooses to reveal himself One of the most peculiar ways of revealing his glory is the suffering that leads to glory, which happens from the beginning to the end of the Bible. In fact, one of the clearest pictures we have of this picture is in Revelation 5. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. This is one of the clearest pictures we have. So John is writing this. He's been given a vision. There's a scroll. The scroll needs to be opened. There's no one that can open the scroll. And so he goes, is there no one? He's crying because the scroll cannot be opened. But then in verse 5 of Revelation, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scrolls and the seven seals. Good news, right? 
Like the one who has come, the Lion of Judah, the powerful figure. This is who we wait for, right? This is our Samson. This is the guy that's going to open the scroll. And then it says he sees him. So get ready for the picture, right? The picture is the great, powerful Lion of Judah has come. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You want to know what the Lion of Judah is? It's the lamb that was sacrificed. This is how God has chosen to reveal his power and his might. It's at the cross. Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian and pastor, uh, called this the admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. You've got to memorize that. Use it at lunch if you can. Good luck. The admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. And it's through this, these divine excellencies that are joined together that we see God's great might and suffering so that he would be most glorified. The way that Jesus proves he's risen from the grave is taking them into the scripture that they would see the divine excellencies of suffering and glory tied together which culminate in the death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. This is how scripture authenticates the resurrection. Jesus doesn't use other means that we might think of today. How do we prove someone that the cross actually existed he says i'm going to take you to the bible because the bible is self-authenticating and what you're going to see is all throughout the word of god this glory and suffering brought together so that at the cross god is most most glorified so think about this it's at the cross jesus crushes the head of satan it's at the cross jesus is the greater isaac who is offered as a sacrifice there's no goat provided Jesus is the sacrifice who dies as our substitute in our place so we can live. Jesus is the greater Joseph, rejected by his brothers so that we would never be rejected. And because of his rejection by the world, he now sits on the throne at the right hand of God, ruling the nations, calling us all to believe in him. Jesus is the Passover lamb that protects all who trust in him. Jesus is the greater Samson, that through his death, he does conquer all enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Jesus is the greater Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who endures the fiery furnace of God's wrath, so we will never have to. Jesus is the greater Daniel who goes into the lion's den, faces the lions, comes out victorious as the lion of Judah so we would come and worship and bow down before him. He is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who has borne the iniquities of the world so that all who believe in him would be saved. That is how Jesus is revealed in scriptures. And this is what the Old Testament leads us to. It points us and prepares us for the cross. Now in the Old Testament, they didn't see it because until Christ comes, there's kind of like this shadow. And they see the shadow, but once Christ comes, they go from the shadow to the true object of their faith. And now in Christ, they see what God has been doing all the time in the Old Testament, proving, displaying his glory through suffering. God does not demand us to come to him. He comes to us. He serves us. He loves us. He dies on a cross. That's the way God has chosen to reveal himself. And so when we come to the scriptures, the 66 books now that we have inspired, this is the glory that it wants us to see, that we have a glorious, mighty, powerful God And the way that he reveals himself is through the suffering of the cross. And that is the way he is most glorified because it's through that cross that we are able to come to him, that we can live in his presence. We don't go back to a garden like Adam and Eve, but we go to a city where we now dwell in the eternal presence of God forever. That's the hope that we now have. And look at verse 31. Jesus reveals himself. They recognize him. 
and then he vanishes. Wouldn't you have had so many questions at that moment? Now, verse 32, notice what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Is that what you would have said? Like Jesus appears, and then poof, he's gone. I remember when he was talking to us a while ago. Man, was your heart moving? So was mine. Like, wouldn't you be like, oh my goodness, like it's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? Like he appears, he disappears, and they're talking about what he said like hours ago on the seven-mile journey. It's as if they already knew he had been raised from the dead because of the self-authenticating power of the word of God which Christ had already given them. When Jesus reveals himself, it's that it is. It proves what the scripture has already shown us to be. The only way we understand the cross of Jesus Christ is coming to the scriptures. I think it's a point that we see here. The scriptures reveal the need for this cross. The scriptures reveal that Christ has risen from the grave. And so listen, the way we grow as a church, I mean, bookstores are great, and I encourage you, go grab the books and read them, but they are only meant to bring you back into the word of God. It is through the word of God that we will grow. It is through the word of God we'll better understand the glory of God. Notice what happens when we behold the glory of God in Scripture. There's the witness. They get up and they run seven miles back to Emmaus. Now that that's, might mean something to you, might not. For one, seven miles, if Robert Bodie was in here, he's like, I run seven miles all the time. That's like a marathon for me. Like, I'm not making that. Uh, Robert can do that easy. But at night, the roads were treacherous. Nobody travels at night. You'll be taken by robbers and thieves. But these guys, they don't care. They behold the glory of God in scriptures. It's been confirmed. They're now running seven miles. I bet they had a really good pace. You wonder, like, what was that pace? Verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us when we see the glory of God in Scripture? Our hearts will burn. The result is we can't contain the glory of God. It must go forth, which I think you can then begin to see how we're going to get to the next passage next week where Jesus is now releasing his disciples into all the world with his spirit. When we behold the glory of God, it must be shared. It's unable to be contained. And so if you find yourself here and you're going, man, I have a real difficult time sharing the gospel. Now, I, I admit, like, there can be difficulties, right? If you're sitting here and saying, look, I don't know what I desire. I'm really too scared. I don't even try. What I would say is the solution is to come see the glory of God in Scripture. Because as our minds see the glory of God, we are filled and our hearts are filled with the fire of God. They are consumed and we are compelled to go forth. Because how can we keep quiet of the one who is risen and offers forgiveness of sins to the world? How do you keep quiet? How do we not share the news? So when we talk about, I mean, even simple things. Invite people to the Christmas Eve service. Simple. I urge you to do that. Now, I know for some of you, that's going to be a big first step. But I, I, I urge you to come and say, God, set my heart on fire through your scriptures. Help me to see your glory, that I'd be consumed with your glory. All other glories would lessen and diminish, and your glory would stand brightest, that I would share you at all times. I think that's the text that we have. I think that's the answer. What Jesus is communicating when he says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The way glory is revealed is through the cross and that is nothing new. Everything in the Old Testament has led to that. When you stare at the sun, you can't see anything, right? Some of you know that. You're like, I can't see anything now because of that. But because of the sun, you can see everything, right? We can't stand, stare directly at the glory of God. It's too bright. But through his word, which reveals the glory of God to us, it's through his word we do see everything. It is, amen. It's through this word. 
And so when you're saying, how do I understand this world? How do I understand this life? How do I understand where I'm at? How do I understand the cross? How do I understand how to share the gospel? Whatever it is, it is coming to the word. Because it's through the word. Your mind will be illuminated by the spirit of God that you will see his glory. And then all things become increasingly clear. We're going to pray. We're not taking communion today. And that is a, a, a problem because we don't have grape juice. <laughs> there was a, a fault in communication, mostly mine. And uh, so we will take t- two grape juice drinks next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we don't, we're not able to do that today. And so please forgive us. Uh, feel free to go home and have communion with your family. Uh, but we're not able to do that here because we actually don't have the resources. So if you all want to go buy some grape juice this week, bring it in, and we'll, we'll stock it up so this will never happen again. Um, I, I want to urge you, this is our God. Like when we come to scriptures, he reveals his glory. And it's most clearly revealed at the cross. And you might be here today, and you're sitting there going, man, I've been a Christian for five years, ten years, twenty years, and you feel like you're in cruise control, and you're not feeling that fire within you. I urge you, let this prayer come to you today and pray, let your word set my heart on fire. Now, I get it that we're going to go through times of ups and downs. I get that. But that's also why we have community, where we come along at each other, pray with each other, pray with one another, encourage one another. It's the reason we have membership, we covenant to each other, to strengthen each other. I want to encourage you, pray that prayer that God set my heart on fire through your word. Let it be that your word is the air that I breathe every day because it's your glory that I'm most consumed at. And if that seems like a foreign prayer, if you're not even sure you want to say that prayer, I encourage you, come into the word, begin praying it every day, and just watch what God does. Watch what God does. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just ask that you do what you say you will do. Set our hearts on fire. God, I pray that my heart, that I would feel the fiery warmth of your glory burning inside of me, knowing with great conviction that your son has come, has died, has risen victorious, and only in your son is there forgiveness of sins. Lord, I want to be convicted of that more and more every day. Lord, I don't want to contain that. I want to be compelled all the more by your spirit within me to share the good news. And I pray that we as a church would behold that glory that we would see your glory so clear in Scripture that we cannot contain it. Lord, as we go forward into Christmas, as we go into the new year, Lord, I pray that we as a church would see your glory so much more clearly and that, God, you would use us as your instruments to share the gospel, your word, and that we would see many more disciples come to know you. Father, we praise you. We praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.